Canada is the quintessential transatlantic country. Our security and prosperity are intimately tied to security and prosperity of both sides of the Atlantic. Our NATO allies are, and will continue to be, central in protecting and defending Canadian interests and values. Canadians sacrifice blood and treasure to defend freedom and democracy in Europe, and Canadians continue to stand on guard in defense of our allies today. This is Across the Pond, an eight-part series by the Macdonald-Laurier Institute's Transatlantic Program in cooperation with NATO Public Diplomacy Division, where we explore current and emerging challenges Canada and our NATO allies are facing in a world in flux. I am Dr. Balkan Devlin, a senior fellow with the MLI and co-host of Across the Pond. In this episode, I am joined by my co- by my co-host Jonathan Berkshire Miller, senior fellow and the director of the Indo-Pacific Program at MLI, and Verle Novens, who is a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, in the UK, focusing on geopolitical relations in the Asia-Pacific region. We have a wide-ranging conversation on NATO and Indo-Pacific, how and how much NATO can and should engage with the Indo-Pacific region, strengthening ties with fellow democracies such as Japan, South Korea and Australia, implications for AUKUS for NATO, and what Canada can learn from our European allies while developing its Indo-Pacific strategy and more. Please enjoy this episode with Jonathan Miller and Virle Novens. Hi, this is Balkan Devlen. Welcome to the Across the Pond. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Jonathan Miller, and our guest, Virle Novens. We'll be talking about Indo-Pacific and NATO. Well, um, without further ado, Virle, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at RUSI. Thank you so much for having me on here today. It's an absolute pleasure. At RUSI, I lead the Indo-Pacific program. We established that last year. And really within this program, what we do is we look at how cooperation and competition is evolving in this part of the world. And of course, the combined region of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Oceans and their littorals. We look at the major geopolitical shifts that we see happening, which of course includes the rise of China, but also the role of India and as well, indeed, the role of Russia. And then we look at how other countries are engaging with this and reacting to this. So we see a wealth of discussion on the Indo-Pacific region in Europe, in particular, of course, recently, in addition to Australia, Japan, the US and ASEAN and India. Europe's really coming to the scene now and thinking strategically about what this means for them and their security. And that not least includes both the EU and its member states, but also the UK through its Indo-Pacific tilt. So that's really what we look at. And it's really just the start of what I think will be a long-term trend with a lot of work ahead of us. This sounds fascinating. And again, thank you very much for joining us today. You're definitely dealing with one of the hot topic issues in everyone's mind. And here at MLI, Jonathan is our to-go guy who knows in the Pacific best. So as the co-host today, I'm sure he has many questions. So I'll turn to you, Jonathan, to start our conversation today. Well, thanks very much, Balkan. And uh, Virle, it's excellent to talk to you uh, again. 
as Balkan mentioned, Canada is also deeply thinking about this region right now, the Indo-Pacific region, and trying to formulate a strategic approach to this. So we're very interested to learn not only how the EU itself, but how different EU member states are thinking about this region, how this thinking has been evolving. But also, as Balkan mentioned, one of the focuses of this podcast is looking at NATO itself as an institution and how NATO is dealing with the different challenges that it faces. If you don't mind, I'd like to kick off on that first topic. So specifically with regard to the alliance, with regard to NATO. The alliance has has recognized officially what it refers to as systemic challenges faced by China, I think some of which you referenced at the onset, and also a number of different member states, whether it's the Germans, uh, whether it's the Dutch, have adopted their own Indo-Pacific approaches or strategies. First off, to sort of kick the discussion off, as an alliance that seems stretched in many different directions and on different site security priorities, of course, on the eastern flank, but also managing instability in Western Africa and the Sahel. How much attention do you think NATO can and will seriously devote to the Indo-Pacific in the coming years? I think that's a really fantastic question and a very important one. And I think that is one that's on the minds of a lot of different observers of this of this trend towards the Indo-Pacific. You know, you ask how much bandwidth NATO really has to be able to divert to the Indo-Pacific. I think we need to unpack this a little bit. Firstly, of course, there's a question of what this would actually entail. Does it mean thinking about the Indo-Pacific? Does it mean kind of paying more attention to what happens in this region? Or does it mean actually diverting resources and physical assets towards the region? I think what we have seen so far is that it's not really about NATO moving into the Indo-Pacific in the way that physical resources are used to address security challenges and instability around and in NATO's own areas of interest, at least in the immediate neighborhoods. What it does mean, I think, is about understanding the real geopolitical shifts that take place there and that are ongoing, the potential instability. It's about information sharing. And it's also about understanding that the Indo-Pacific and, of course, China uh, as a leading concern within the Indo-Pacific is also coming to NATO. There is a lot of discussion around China, of course, in NATO since 2019 in particular, where China was mentioned as posing systemic challenges to NATO. And that's really across a whole host of different areas, including new advanced technology, around disinformation, around other disruptive investments and economic heft that China has in specific European countries and NATO member states. And it's about the way that that impacts NATO unity. So this is a pretty critical question for NATO to come to terms with and to try and find a common sense of understanding, common threat perception, and a common response to it. It's also begs the question, can NATO really afford not to pay attention to China and to what happens in the Indo-Pacific? And in that respect, given, as you say, European countries, indeed NATO countries, we include, of course, the US and also partners of NATO in the Indo-Pacific, they themselves are, are hugely concerned with some of the potential instability that we see in the Indo-Pacific and the way that that is directly tied to their own prosperity and security. And so I think it's only natural for NATO to try and find a way forward to be more aware of what is going on in that part of the world and to understand how that directly and indirectly impacts the security of its allies. I think what you said is extremely important and make me wonder, would there be a risk of given 30 members and divergent interests 
and sort of the relative distance uh, in terms of geographic distance as well as sort of political interest distance of different allies to the Indo-Pacific. Is there a danger of ending with the, the lowest common denominator in terms of NATO's approach to Indo-Pacific when we try to reconcile these many approaches? Or would this provide actually an impetus of developing a cohesive strategy partly because it is not the immediate neighborhood? That's an interesting question. Look, I think this is already something that is being asked in reference to how the European Union deals with the Indo-Pacific, for example. Even within the European Union, with that amount of member states, do you risk, in practical terms, falling back onto, as you say, the lowest common denominator? I suppose that that is a risk, to be honest, because, of course, not everyone is necessarily as concerned with developments in the Indo-Pacific within NATO. And so that is possible. But having said that, the lowest common denominator, in a sense, is better than having no strategy whatsoever. And so I think it is about getting that ball rolling and starting to think about this and what this means for NATO. Because it is more removed from NATO's own immediate neighborhood, would that offer it the opportunity to think more creatively, perhaps aim for higher ambitions? Possibly. But again, there is the trouble that different countries have different relationships with China. And of course, China is an important part of the Indo-Pacific and concerns around developments in the region. And so I would say that that might be a difficult hurdle for some to necessarily aim for higher ambitions. That's a really good point, Vilay. And just to jump in on this, I had one sort of follow-up I wanted to put, because I think this is something on the Canadian side that I hear often uh, when thinking about the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and essentially, it sort of goes like this, that especially in political security terms, when we think of some of the challenges in this region, we don't clearly see them as existential to Canadian national security interests. Effectively, we see them in this sort of luxury item basket where it would be good to engage. We plug in from time to time, but we don't see it as consequential, as you know, existential, as I mentioned, to our security. The interesting point, and you know, we mentioned at the onset how NATO obviously rightly is focused on issues on its eastern flank, especially with everything happening around Ukraine, Belarus, and the Baltics, etc. But the convergence of challenges, and specifically I'm referring to here. Russia and China. And while I think a lot is made out of that relationship that sometimes is overplayed, I think there is a real strategic convergence happening and alignment in some sense in the military space. But to me, that sort of doubles the emphasis for what you're saying is that not only can we not lose our eye on the developments in China and, in, and the Indo-Pacific, but also this sort of convergence of interest between Russia and China. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I think that's the Russia-China relationship is one that was mentioned in in the NATO 2030 Reflection Group report, there was a specific mention of a recommendation for NATO to look at how Russia and NATO, particularly in relation to their military partnership, are evolving and could possibly have a greater impact on Euro-Atlantic security. We have, of course, in the past already seen Russia and China conduct maritime exercises in the Euro-Atlantic region. So this is nothing new. And given the direction of travel, that might continue to be seen or, or might continue to evolve in ways that would have a greater impact in NATO itself. That's a very important one, but I think it goes beyond just the military cooperation. It's also about are they and how are they cooperating on standards? How are they cooperating within international organizations? Is there an effort to coordinate on disinformation uh, or 
even if they're not coordinating, how do they use disinformation? In the Integrated Review of the UK, we talk about the threat to free societies, free and open societies by authoritarian regimes. All of these, I think, impact the operational and the political environment in Europe. And that really is of concern to NATO. Thanks. That's an excellent point. And just to shift back a little bit to the Indo-Pacific, and I think we talked a lot about the why and why states in NATO should be interested and should be focused on this area, but a little more to the how, in particular, looking at some of the partner countries in this region. So some of the key partners, countries for NATO in this region, of course, including Japan, South Korea, and Australia. As we know, all three of these are key treaty allies of the United States. In your mind, do you find that these partnerships are underutilized in a NATO context? And are there ways to realistically incorporate or collaborate more with these partners? And then I guess related to this as well is, you know, how can NATO itself and NATO countries uh, better engage in this region with those partners? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's telling that I think it was only in December 2020 that the four Asia-Pacific partners participated for the first time ever in a NATO foreign ministerial meeting. I think to that end, there's absolutely more room and a need for greater dialogue, political dialogue and coordination, particularly, again, when we talk about a lot of these other security issues uh, in terms of new technology, in terms of cyber and disinformation, in terms of how uh, all the different NATO operating domains are being engaged in by countries like China and Russia in potentially destabilizing ways, that need for dialogue, uh, that need for information sharing is really great. In terms of how to better leverage these countries, I think absolutely, you know, having deeper dialogues, more regular dialogues, roping them into the NATO architecture more is one way to bridge that gap. Obviously, there's also practical cooperation. But what I think is probably an interesting point is, you know, should we also look beyond these four countries? Should we look, for example, at India, which has now been mentioned as a country that perhaps NATO should be engaging more with and having a a strategic partnership with, given the evolving situation in the Indo-Pacific and the role that India plays as fellow democracy? Are there also other countries that are potentially interested in engaging with NATO? I think many countries would be quite wary in the Indo-Pacific of necessarily joining anything that looks like remotely related to China, given their geographic location and the sensitivities around appearing to join alliances or groupings that are focused on China, as of course, you know, looking at the Indo-Pacific, NATO would of course be looking at China specifically as well. There are centers of excellence. There are also both NATO and external which could, I think, again, build a network for these countries to share information, to understand best practices, and to create that wider network of engagement. So again, if we talk about NATO Indo-Pacific, it's not about necessarily sending ships over under a NATO banner, but it could be about engaging with a more diverse range of actors in the region to discuss and understand from one another's perspectives and experiences what some of these other security areas are that they are most concerned with for their own national and regional security. And I think in that sense, the four Asia-Pacific partners that are currently already part of NATO offer a really interesting opportunity for NATO 
to leverage them and to enhance that network. Japan, Australia, South Korea, they all have their own. New Zealand, they all have their own specific networks in the region. Those, I think, would be great stepping stones in a way to, for NATO to get that message out and to build its network, at least informally for the time being. I think what you said is extremely important. And I would think engaging with these countries, particularly the four, but going beyond those four, would be an attractive proposition for the smaller NATO countries, rather than trying to develop those bilateral relationships. Those four do have strong bilateral relationship with certain NATO members, such as US or UK, Belgium, for example, or Czech Republic may not necessarily have the same level of bilateral relationship with Japan or South Korea or Australia. And I think developing those through an institutional mechanism within NATO would provide benefits to both sides without necessarily having the overhead of the bilateral relationship, which can be quite substantial in terms of both diplomatic and capacity-wise. So I think that is a winning, in a way, formula. And we do have you know, structures that we have established before that can be emulated or replicated, things such as the you know, partnership for peace and enhanced partnerships and so on and so forth. Having a look, as Secretary General recently repeated, NATO is not a global alliance. It's an alliance between North America and Europe, but it is a globally oriented alliance. And I think having that orientation in a more institutional footing would definitely benefit a lot of the challenges that you have been you have been talking about. Absolutely. And specifically also because, you know, so many of these challenges that we think about when we think about the Indo-Pacific are not simply challenges that are limited to the Indo-Pacific itself, but really impact NATO member state or allied states, and of course, also countries in the Indo-Pacific. So if we talk about activity in outer space, if we talk about cyber or even climate change, those are all areas that NATO is interested in and, and working on, and those will be of equal concern and importance to countries in the Indo-Pacific, particularly those four that are already part of NATO, but also those smaller states, as you mentioned. And I think building those connections will help at least offer a global picture, as you say, to addressing or at least finding ways to address the challenges and at least building an understanding of exactly what everyone is facing. That's a fantastic point, Vile. Um, and just to add one point, and because all of us here, from a self-interested perspective, are working with think tanks, but thinking about NATO and its relationship to the Indo-Pacific, and while a lot of these partnerships in the region have been longstanding, they're not necessarily new, I think this discussion sort of outlines how they haven't necessarily been utilized in a perfect sense. So thinking about the roles of, of civil society in particular, whether it's with think tanks or academics or others, it seems to be a real fertile area. I know there have been a few discussions and projects focused on this, but would you agree that this would seem to be a really important area for think tanks to work on? I don't know if nascent is the right word, but it is really an area that's not as explored as others. And have you seen much in your world focused on this? And do you think it's going to be an area of priority for think tanks to be working on in, in the years to come? It's always a little tricky as a think tanker to say, absolutely, organizations should definitely be engaging with think tanks. But I would genuinely agree for a number of reasons, really. I mean, I think you're right that think tanks probably haven't been leveraged enough. I know that there are think tanks, obviously, within the Euro-Atlantic kind of space that are working on NATO issues 
issues and looking at China as well. But I think broadening that out to the Indo-Pacific is an area that there is absolutely room for more to be done. But what I think is really important as well is to tap into think tanks that offer different perspectives and perspectives that NATO might not necessarily always come across. So of course, we've mentioned these four countries in the Asia Pacific. There's such a diversity of opinion across the Indo-Pacific, where I think engaging with think tanks from all those different perspectives would help NATO understand that not everyone in the Indo-Pacific is on the same page when it comes to the different challenges that exist within the Indo-Pacific. And so in that respect as well, I think it could also help maybe dispel some of the myths or at least dispel some of the concerns that there are. You've asked, have I come across discussions around NATO and Indo-Pacific in my work so far? Absolutely. You know, there are a lot of conversations, at least a lot of questions around what NATO and Indo-Pacific actually really means. What does that look like in practical terms? Does that mean that NATO is going to now be operational in the Indo-Pacific? And again, on that point, you know, not everyone is equally enthusiastic about that idea. And so working with think tanks, engaging in that discussion and that debate also offers a really important opportunity for NATO to get its message across as to what it is thinking in the short, medium, and long term when it comes to the Indo-Pacific. Thanks so much, Rio. That's uh, really helpful to sort of switch gears a little bit and a more sort of challenging topic, but still quite related. I want to move to the most recent AUKUS deal. Obviously, it sent a lot of ripples through the region and in particular has led to strains between Australia and France but also Paris's relationship with Washington. And so rather than focus on the deal itself and some of the sort of political fallout of this deal, I want to think about this forward-looking and, and how do you see the basis of this arrangement evolving and how will NATO itself deal with this, number one, the issue of cohesion within the alliance, but also a defense technology more broadly and working to mitigate the risks of disruptive and emerging technology. And a sort of a last point on this is, do you see other countries within NATO plugging into this agreement in the coming years once the dust settles a little bit? Or how do you sort of see the, the future trajectory of AUKUS? I think so far what we've seen, or I think Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, has commented very briefly on, on AUKUS and said that greater cooperation amongst NATO member states and partners in the region is always welcomed. Although the, the political fallout, as you've described, is, of course, unfortunate. And I would add to that, of course, <laughs> the political fallout between France and the UK as well. Focus a lot on France and Australia, but France and UK are in a difficult spot. And, and that is important given they are two of the most well-equipped and have the greatest capacity for power projection into the Indo-Pacific amongst all European countries. So that is slightly worrying. In terms of cohesion within NATO, again, I guess there's concerns around whether the AUKUS relationship is going to lead towards a greater emphasis on a European capability, on a European response, and what that then means for NATO, what that again means for wider European, not just EU, but wider European cooperation and also transatlantic relations. I don't think, honestly, that it is going to be that detrimental. I think that in time, this will blow over. These are all countries, all four countries involved, if we include France, of course, understand the bigger picture and the pressing challenges that there are in the Indo-Pacific, particularly around strategic stability vis-a-vis -vis China. And so hopefully, I do think that this 
will happen. This will probably blow over in time. But I think it does point towards a really important defense, as you pointed out, defense technology element of it all and the need for greater cooperation. And you know, we focus a lot on the submarine deal that will take a very long time to really come to fruition and for those submarines to be delivered. But in the meantime, there's also a whole host of defense technology and particularly new emerging technology that will be part of this partnership as well. AI, quantum, one would imagine space. All of these areas are areas that NATO is also looking at, that NATO countries could do well to work with Australia in as well. But I don't think it's a bad thing that Australia, the UK and the US have kickstarted their own, at least grouping as such, to get that research and development off the ground or at least started in a more streamlined and focused direction. But it does, of course, also offer the opportunity for other countries in time to join. And I think we've heard some voices in Japan, particularly, for example, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, saying that this was an opportunity for Japan to look into. And again, as an Asia-Pacific partner of NATO, that I think would help strengthen NATO further. There are undoubtedly other countries that can help in work together with AUKUS on very specific issue points, specific technologies. But I think it is going to take a little bit of time to figure all this out and then to extend that to others. I think what you said is extremely important because to me, when I look at it, AUKUS provides, in a way, prototyping of such a cooperation across a variety of technologies. And I totally agree. I mean, the nuclear sub component is important, but what is sort of long-term more important is the cooperation on the technology and emerging technologies domain. This provides a piecemeal approach, if need be, for the allies to engage with other partners in the Indo-Pacific through already established mechanisms, perhaps the AUKUS will be developing. So it is, in a way, I would see that as a prototyping for smaller groups within NATO to be able to engage with with other partners outside NATO on a sort of interest-based structure without necessarily having all the 30 member states agreeing on the precise mechanism and the extent of such cooperations. So actually it will provide, I would argue, more flexibility for NATO to be able to um, engage on those other domains, which are not you know, geographically limited, including cybersecurity, space, as you pointed out, and others that do not necessarily only limit it to one geographic region when the treaty was signed back in forty nine, So that's not going to be helpful to define them geographically. So that is in a very interesting position. If I may just pivot here and ask one question, and I think this is also direct to Jonathan as well, if he wants to jump in and chime in. Canada is... Well, hopefully, developing an Indo-Pacific strategy, finally. We might see the white smoke emerging with Habermus Strategium at some point. But having the UK's strategy and another European, Germany and, and Dutch strategies and evolving, what would be your pointers for a Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy when and if it emerges? And what kind of structures that it really need to be dealt with? And what are the lessons learned from the European and Indo-Pacific strategies? 
that you have seen? Oh, that's a really interesting question. It's actually one that Jonathan and I discussed earlier this year on Canada and the Indo-Pacific. Um, I mean, in that discussion, we spoke on a host of different things, but it included the need for Canada to engage more actively in regional organizations, that it has been more focused on China in the past. And of course, that relationship has become extremely difficult over the past few years. And so really, for Canada to be more present, be more visible, be more engaged with ASEAN, with the Pacific Island Forum, with other forums which offer regional or sub-regional engagement in the Indo-Pacific is one avenue that Canada should absolutely proceed to follow. If we look at concerns around how the Arctic flows into the Indo-Pacific, you know, if we look at Northeast Asian or North Pacific security, how Russia feeds into this as well, those are all areas that Canada, I think, is well-placed to feed into and work with partners on. The wider values engagement that we've seen Canada be very active on recently is another avenue for Canada to pursue with European partners, I think, who who are also particularly focused on this. But then finally, given Canada's position geographically, I think it would be really interesting as well to look at how can Canada, in terms of Pacific maritime security, also engage more with the South Pacific and with Latin America. We can't do everything everywhere all the time. And so that burden sharing arrangement amongst countries and like-minded partners who are interested in a more coordinated and networked approach to the Indo-Pacific is one where I think Canada should have a think about where its strengths lie, where it has most added value, and where it could potentially burden share and rely slightly more on others to take up most of the work and where Canada could play a supporting role. I know Jonathan will have opinions on this as well, so I'm going to hand it over to him to feed into it. Well, Avila, I think you've done a lot of the heavy lifting. And after listening to you, I think we'll have to get you to Ottawa to advise the government on this, because I think a lot of the areas that you've highlighted are very relevant and align very closely with some of the advice I've been saying. I think specifically on the Pacific, I think the South Pacific is an interesting area. I agree. And one of the opportunities, I think, out of AUKUS, we have a very strong relationship more broadly with France. I think there's a lot of opportunities to plug in with France. Just a couple points on this. I think the challenge for the Canadian side, and this would probably be true with a lot of our European friends, is we're very multilateral in nature, and that's great. We're going to have to continue to strengthen some of the multilateral architecture in the region. But the reality is that the Indo-Pacific, really, as you would know as well, is not the transatlantic. We do not have the architecture that Europe has, that North America has. So that requires us to be a lot more adept and creative in the way that we engage. So I think some of these minilateral engagements we're going to have to plug into from time to time in order to achieve our interests. And I think we just haven't quite gotten there to understanding how to navigate that world. I would note that some of the advice we can take from the Europeans is that it's very helpful now that the EU has a strategy out that some of the member states that we've talked about before have approaches Because I think it sort of upends a narrative that we've been hearing in Canada that effectively the Indo-Pacific is an American idea or a Japanese idea, and no one else has really bought into it. I think the idea that now the European Union itself, ASEAN, while it has different contours, has an outlook for the Indo-Pacific, I think has sort of convinced the Canadian side that this is not a couple states in the region focusing on this, but this is a, a, a range of different countries and institutions that are realizing they have equities. So I think this is a very, very important 
instigator for Canada to move forward on a strategy. The last point I would make, the nuts and bolts of what we do, I think is important. I would say already, to be honest, on the security and defense side, we are doing some pretty interesting things. It's not sufficient, but whether it's uh, Operation Neon on the Korean Peninsula, the recent Taiwan Straits crossing, some of the freedom of navigation work that we're doing, is pretty significant for a country like Canada. But without a strategy, it's hard to stitch all of those seemingly ad hoc or tactical pieces together. The strategy is important, but it's not just releasing a strategy and saying, this is how we feel about this region. It's very actively pushing this out. Public diplomacy should not be underestimated on this. As someone who formerly worked in the government, I'm used to seeing government documents and white papers like this buried on a government website that maybe attracts the interest of Balkan, Virle, and myself. Outside of that, it gets very little attention. I think this would be a mistake from the Canadian side. I think they very much need a public strategy that is promoted as much as possible. So I'll leave it at that. Virle, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you on this. I think this discussion could go on for some time. I wanted to thank you again for joining us, and I'm sure we'll have a part two in coming months. Fantastic. There was a lot that I wanted to just feed into what you just said. So let's absolutely continue the discussion on another occasion. There is a wealth to really dig into, I think, in what we've already discussed today. So I'm looking forward to it. And thank you again for having me on. Exactly. This was very good discussion. I, I personally learned a lot and I'm sure the, the audience will learn a lot as well when they listen to it. Once again, really, thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you, Jonathan, for these incisive questions. And I agree, we need to make a follow-up episode on to discuss a lot of the topics that we could have gone. Thank you very much once again.